suffering. Pasco, with a K in the Greek. Remember that last week? Suffering. That they were united with Christ in his suffering. They were appointed, ordained to suffer on behalf of Christ. That the circumstances they might be in might be able to shine his glory. And we'll get into this a little bit more identifying with him. So as a result of suffering, many of the emperor's guards were coming to faith. And Paul exhorted the, the Philippians who also were suffering for their faith. It wasn't a really easy city to, to be a Christian in, Philippi. He exhorted them to continue, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, act like where you're from. And that they would be united and unified together in the gospel, not being frightened by the opposition because of their faith in him. Don't be, uh, don't be afraid when people start persecuting. Expect it. The Beatitudes, we went over that a couple years ago. Remember that, Matthew? Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Jesus said, these are, these are the things. As we follow Christ, they become more like Christ. We shine his light. Guess what? The darkness does not like the light. It wants to put out the light. The more of the world that's in our lives, the more that we give over to the world, the less of the light shines. Jesus would have us be full of him, full of his Holy Spirit, and let the light shine through us, not letting anything block that. And the more we do, I tell you, the more opportunity there is for resistance. The enemy will target you. He will look at you and go, that, let's take that person out, shining a little bit too much Jesus for my taste. And uh, there you go. Warfare begins. And so Paul reminds them that their faith and their suffering were ordained by God just as it was in Paul. Hey, just like I'm going through that, God is in this. Don't think it's because you've done something bad. God's working out something in and through you. And so... Chapter 2 begins uh, in verse 1, and it says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in, with Christ, <clears throat> if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one Spirit and of one mind. Now, Paul was encouraging them in the end of the last chapter regarding outside conflicts. Those persecutions that were working on the outside. And now he's kind of talking to him about inside, relational type stuff. Same thing as you were identified with Christ in those things, be identified with Christ in these things. And so he is going to lay that out here and give ultimately Christ as the example. But they were united with Paul in their suffering and their conflicts. But in ultimately what he's getting at is you're united with Christ in these things. That everything they were going through, they were to be united with Christ. Paul was kind of like a physical example of going around, just as Jesus suffered, Paul was suffering. Just as bad things happened to him, God did good things through him. Same with Jesus. He's, and the ultimate example is Christ. And so he's going to point them to that. Now Paul wants to make sure that they stay and they grow in unity. And this is very important. This is very important because the enemy seeks to do what with us? Divide. What is, he, what is happening in our nation? What is happening in our homes, in families? 
What is happening with, you know, it's dividing. And when you get divided, you become weak. And you fall apart. You know, we don't need to worry about, you know, China coming and attacking us. We need to worry about our family unit. How many kids are out there without fathers? How many kids are out there without parents? Fending for themselves, learning how to do I mean, we've got a breakdown in our society of massive proportions. And, uh, you know, so I'm just saying that pretty heavy stuff here. But Paul wants them to be unified. Because if you're divided, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he uses a rhetorical device here to stir up them by saying the word if. If you have found this. He's using rhetoric here. If you place the word, instead of if you put sense, you kind of really get the idea of what Paul is saying. He's not saying if you've received in it. He's saying, you know, you have. Come on. So the word is sense. So read it with sense. Therefore, since you have received encouragement from being united with Christ, and since you have comfort in his love, since you have experienced uh, the common sharing in the spirit, since you have experienced the tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having that same love, being one in the spirit and of one mind. Since you have received these things from Christ, then be the same way with each other. That unity and the peace and the love that you've received from God is to be the same thing that we're to be experiencing with one another. And that's what he's getting at here. Since you've been unified in this relationship, be unified in these relationships in the same way. And he starts to lay out what that looks like. He gives the church example of how that plays out in their relationships with one another in verse 3. Let's read this, underline it, and let's put it into practice. Verse 3, everybody, ready? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Yeah, kind of different verses there. I think I'm like working out of the 1984 NIV or something. I have no idea. But Paul lays out a couple steps here on how this unity is to happen. Step one, eliminate selfish ambition. Eliminate selfish ambition. No, thank you. (laughs) You know, I mean, does the flesh want that? No, I want what I want. What is selfish ambition? Doing something with the motivation of advancing or promoting one's self. And that's so hard to discern because our culture is permeated by it. The world is permeated by selfish ambition, is it not? Wow. Why we do what we do? Big questions. For example, am I up here leading worship? to be noticed or to get a pat on the back by others because I have this need to be in front of people? I'm just saying. You know what I'm... Is that my motivation? That selfish ambition? Or is it to use the gifts that God's given me to bless Him and to bless others and lead people into point to Him? Very tricky, Right? Because our hearts are always struggling with these things. You get in front of people, and boy, look out. 
you get a pat on the back from someone or great job, you know, yeah, it was a great job, wasn't it? <laughs> Just look at me, you know? Ha! What are our motives? Think of these things in our lives. Think of why you do what you do in your life. Is it wrong to be ambitious? No. He's talking about selfish ambition. When you're using your life and your talents to be a blessing, to go after what God has given you, there's nothing wrong with seeking a promotion at your work so that you can make more money and be a blessing and take care of things. There's nothing wrong with these things. But if your motivation is to get those things so that you can be elevated above others so that they can worship you or whatever it might be, you know what I'm saying? The motivations of our hearts, they seek everything out. I mean, this is what God is concerned with. Jesus isn't concerned with whether you are rich or whether you are poor. It's about our hearts. And so he's talking the same thing. Eliminate selfish motivation. Write that down on the back of your bulletin if you have ink pen. So step one, do that. Step two, eliminate vain conceit. This can be translated empty glory. A dictionary definition of conceit is an excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability, importance, wit, and so forth. Reality TV. I am a reality TV show. <laughs> Look at me and everything I'm doing. And, you know, vain conceit. When we do things uh, feeling we are so important or so able or so talented, we're out of God's will. We're, uh, we are working against the unity Paul is pleading with them to have. I like that thought. So Paul says that we should rather, instead of those things, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. The opposite of that, right? And so the first two steps, eliminate selfish ambition, eliminate vain conceit. Number three, have a right view of yourself before God. Humility, rather in humility. Humility is knowing your place before the king, right? Before others. That's why Jesus says, don't go and take the best seat at the table. What are you doing? Take the least. That way, the only way up is up. <laughs> you don't want to go sit at the, at the head of the table and walk in and go, uh, excuse me, you're demoted. Great. Thinking of yourself more than you ought to, right? Have a humble heart. And we'll get into this a little bit more as we look at Christ. As we are humble, we will value others above ourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. That's what we're to do. So Paul gives them four things, right? This repeating this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Be humble and esteem the interests of others above our own. Now in verse 5, he gives us the ultimate example. How does this, how is this really, what is the ultimate example of all these things? How does it, who can I look to? Everybody. That's right. Seven, right, yeah. <clears throat> That's what we've trained. Yeah, great. Lord, I've taught them Jesus in seven. No, it's not gambling. All right, so six. Verse six. Who being made in very nature God did not consider equality, I'm sorry, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset 
as Christ Jesus. This is very important. Verse 5 is the key to everything. So let's read that again. In together, verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So look to the person to the left and right of you. In your relationships, right? What are we to do? Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Not the mindset that you think you should have, but his, right? His mindset. Who being, what does that look like? Who being, verse 6, in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. This is a theological nugget. I'm not going to unpack all of it right now, but it's... uh, uh, you know, uh, you have some people who would sit there and use this verse to say that Jesus is God, isn't God. But if you get into the Greek, it's actually it's actually talking about he did not consider uh, the uh, being God something to hold on to. In other words, he didn't change his essence; he changed his form. I don't have to stay uh, on the throne; I can become a servant. That's pretty amazing. He didn't change his essence, who he was. He changed his form. And it gets into the Greek here, the words. But going back to uh, uh, to this, the important thing to point out is that before Jesus was in the manger in Bethlehem, he was and always was the eternal God. He was always God. Jesus is God. And that has tremendous advantages, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you could pick a position with a lot of authority, that would be one of the top five. I mean, think about it. Think of the advantages you have in the positions you have as human beings, as, as parents, as uh, you know, co-workers, or a situation where you're, where you're over someone and, and overseeing someone. Uh, you know, just being a guy, you have a lot more strength than your kids, let's just say, or maybe your wife, some of you. You know what I'm saying? Right? Come on, we're joking around. Guys are, no, I'm not that strong. (laughs) But think of the authority that you have and the advantage that you have. The opportunity you have to assert yourself. This is kind of what the heart is, what he's getting at. Think of the people that you're over, the people that you can influence. Jesus, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus was God, but he voluntarily he humbled himself. He lowered himself to the form of a human. Again, his, his essence did not change. He was and always will be the eternal God, but his form changed. He took on, he clothed himself in humanity. This humanity wasn't for a moment. It was unto death. The humility wasn't like a, oh, let's see what that's like, goodbye. He lived it out until he died. He, he embraced it till the end. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to the death of the cross. 
I would encourage you to read through Hebrews where it talks about how he learned obedience through suffering and all this. I, I can't go off on that, that uh, right now. But crucifixion, he, he humbled himself. He became obedient even to the death of the cross. Crucifixion was such a shameful death that it was not permitted for the Romans. Like in Philippi, those people would not be allowed to experience it. And, and if you were into you know, the Jews, any victim of crucifixion was considered to be cursed by God. That's pretty heavy stuff. So Jesus not only was humbled in this position, he took on the worst kind of death, the most humiliating death, even culturally. The extent of Jesus' humility and obedience is shown by the fact that he went to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What is God asking you to obey in these days? How is God asking you to become humbled today? Does it feel like death? Ugh. Remember, this is the mind that is to be with, in us with one another. Paul is reminding the church that our example of unity with each other comes from um, the, our identity with Christ. We identify with him in these things. Humility and obedience. Jesus is the ultimate example of how we are to not esteem ourselves above each other, but rather serve one another. Isn't that true? How did Jesus serve the disciples? Read that. Look how he interacted with them. How did he treat women? How did he treat his mother? How did he treat the people that were around him? What were his priorities in relationship? What does Paul teach about how we should act with one another? These are things we should drive into and, and change. let them change our lives. We're never going to get there until we're there. Amen? This is a process. This is lifelong. It's the point of marriage, the, the humility and servanthood that God is fashioning in us from our spouses by being with them. Amen? Would you be the person you are without them? Would you recognize your own flaws without them? Would you be driven to your knees in prayer without them? I better move on there. I've got several pages of that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Even to the death of the cross. Paul was reminding this suffering church that they were glorifying God in their suffering as they imitated Jesus in their lives and with one another. They're glorifying God. It's part of glorifying God. Now, Paul gives some encouragement as he shows that not only uh, is Christ our example in suffering and humility, and he is our, our, our unifying factor with one another. It's not all suffering. It's not all... There, there's hope at the end of the road. Okay, We're not just suffering for, for, uh, for nothing. We're not just dying for nothing. We're not just giving up what we want and esteeming others for nothing. There's a reward. There's a point. There's a, there's at the end where all things will be revealed. There's there's a reckoning, a day of reckoning. And Paul's going to say, just as we identify him with him with Jesus in these things in our relationships with one another, we're also going to identify him with him in our in the resurrection. So he's just saying all the way through our lives, this is how we identify with him. Therefore, my dear friends. I'm sorry, uh, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus 
Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus had the ultimate humility and he has the ultimate exaltation. Pretty cool. And it's ironic that this is the desire of every king. Isn't it the desire of every king for people to bow down before them and to worship them to be their subjects? I mean, really? To have that kind of authority? This is man's pursuit, to rule over men. Isn't it? I mean, if you're honest about it, look at the way the world has worked over the past thousands of years. What are all the wars about? What are all the elections about? You know what I'm just saying? It's about power. What king in history has given his own life for the least of his subjects? What king gives up his throne to wash people's feet? What king would declare people guilty unto death, yet take their punishment upon himself? The things I were thinking, I was thinking last night. The ultimate humility and the ultimate exaltation. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We are to follow his steps in humility while on earth, and we will also be exalted with him in our death. Jesus talks about that. We talked about Revelation. Just as we identify with him on the earth, we're going to identify with him in heaven. He's going to raise us up to be with him, to rule and reign with him. And again, to the degree to which we embrace him now and follow him now is the degree that we will be rewarded then with what we've been given. We see that with the, with the parable of the talents, with the parable of what you've been given, what are you doing with your investments, with what God's given you. God will give you more, and then in the end, how much more? But if we take it and we squander it, this precious salvation that God's given us, boy, we're going to lose out on the things for all eternity that we could have had. This is not working to be saved. This is what we do with our salvation. Amen? There's a difference. You're saved. You're giving your life to Jesus. Great. Now follow me, is what he says. Live your life so I can shine through you. The degree that you do that, this is the degree you'll be rewarded with what I've given you. He's a, he's a just and fair God. We're to follow in his steps and humility on earth. Therefore, my dear friends, Ending in just a moment here. As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good pleasure. This is important. What does Paul mean by telling them to continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Does this mean continue to earn your salvation? Don't take my word for it. Better start digging yourself. What does it say? That word work. Paul calls the Philippians to put forth real effort into their Christian lives. It's not to work, it's not to work towards their salvation, it's to work for work it out. The idea is to work out your salvation. If you're saved, 
Put meat on the bones. Let's go. Put it into gear. Paul calls Philippians to put forth real effort into their Christian lives. This is not to work their salvation in the sense of accomplishing it, but to work out their salvation, to see it evident in every area of their lives, to activate this salvation of God that God freely gave them. Let's activate. Amen? So why is it working out with fear and trembling? Why is there fear and trembling in there? That's an interesting thought. And this is kind of what I was thinking, but for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is involved. And if God is desiring to work in your life, if he is creating the desires in you and you are unresponsive, that shows a lack of reverence and it shows a lack of, of knowing who he is and where he's at, right? Fear and trembling. Yes, Lord, he's working this on my heart. I better do everything to respond to his spirit. Don't grieve the spirit. Right? God's calling on you this morning in your hearts. Respond. Go for it. He's creating the desire to, to will, and he's also creating you the desire to do. Show your reverence by doing what he has at his place before you. Realize that God is at work in you. He both works on your will, your desires, and, he also, and also that his will would be accomplished in and through us. It can't stay in the brain, I wrote. Our faith must become action. How often does something God tell you stay in your brain? He wants to, to put legs to it, go. The whole process of God working in us. Is the, is the entire deal, to will and to do. You know, Jesus talks about if you hear my words and don't put action on them, man, you're like a guy who's put their, built their house on sand. What are you doing? Now, I don't know about you, but being humble and putting our needs above others and following Jesus' example and all this stuff we've been talking about kind of makes me a cranky Christian. Anyone? How about you? Yeah? And that's why verse 14, I think right after he says all this stuff, it goes to 14. What does verse 14 say? Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Paul is, is, drawing, and we're in, Paul is drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, pretty much, I believe, which says, they have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish. A, a perverse and crooked generation. Um, and this, in the minds of the Jewish culture at Corinth, well, I was just think, thinking, they are, he, Paul is, he's, he's pointing back to ancient Israel, and he's looking at them going, you know what, these people were given so much, and they started grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. And God said, he's, he's, he's bringing up something that would be familiar with them and saying, don't be grumbling and complaining when I'm asking you, when God's asking to work and do these things in your life. Stop complaining about them. Just have a good heart because you know what happened to those people who grumbled and complained. That's not you. I know you've always obeyed. You've always continued to obey, but I want you to continue in this, right? Don't, don't do that. Don't even go down that road. Look at the example of what happened. Be found blameless in this crooked and perverse uh, generation. The Philippians lived in a crooked and perverse generation. Do we live in a crooked and perverse generation? A warped and crooked generation, right? 
you know, I, I find myself complaining about my health or other things instead of focusing on what God desires to do in me as a result of these things. Anyone? Trials are meant to bless me in the end and bring me into a deeper relationship with God. Opportunities to crucify the flesh, not let it grow, or to be found blameless. So next time you start grumbling when God asks you to do something, you know, stop it. You know? Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. God wants you to be a light in this dark world. You are called, you were made, you were formed to be a light, a shining light, a city on a hill. If we are not those things, what is our purpose? We don't have one, but you are. That's who you are. That's, who, that's Jesus in you. He calls you to shine. He wants your light to go blowtorch, right? Just get it going. <clears throat> We are to be a light as we firmly hold to the word of light. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. You know, I can relate with Paul in this. You know, how many years, 15 years of the ministry now, uh, you know, devoting yourself to different aspects of what God's calling you to do, and you wonder in the end, did it make a difference? Did all those relationships, did all that time, did all the preaching, did all the leading worship, did all the counseling, did all the hours sacrifice, is it going to make a difference? I mean, is it all in vain? You know? And I sometimes think the same thing. You can relate it as parents. Is it in vain? You know, that I invest today? There's these areas that we can kind of connect. But just like Paul, I pray that on the day of Christ we'll, there will be lasting fruit. And the idea is not just for Paul's joy, it's ultimately for theirs. And Paul, in 17, we're going to bust through this part, even I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Drink offering. You can go read about it for fun in Numbers 15 and 28. But just something that was on a sacrifice, you just pour out this drink and it just go poof. <clears throat> Paul's gone, look, I'm like a drink offering. You, the sacrifice is your faith and your service, the things you are doing. And I'm just kind of like alongside of you. And it's sweet to the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a smelling savor. God looks at your service. God looks at your giving. God looks at everything you're doing in your life that no one else knows about and all these types of stuff. It's sweet to him. It's sweet. He says, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Now, Powell wraps up this section, and he just says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that he also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus. Timothy was a living example we just talked about, someone who looks out for the example of others. <clears throat> but you know that Timothy has proved himself, verse 22, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him to you as, as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Uh, Timothy was the spiritual son to Paul. 
They worked together. He had been proven in ministry. Notice Paul sends his most trustworthy person to do an important task. He doesn't just send anybody. He sends someone who's been tried, someone who's been tested. There are important things to be accomplished in this church. There are important things, and we, and we pray for trustworthy men, trustworthy women to entrust these things to. And so these are things to aspire to. <clears throat> Paul des- desired to send Timothy to do what he could not do himself. So who would you best send? Someone with your same heart. And that's what he did. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is in distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only him, but also on me, to spare me the sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send to him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and that I may have less anxiety. Epaphroditus brought a gift, a financial gift to them. He got sick while he was there. He almost, he almost died, and Paul identifies him as three things. He goes, a brother, a co-worker, and a soldier. I like what David Guzik says about this. He's bro- he says, brother speaks of a bond to be enjoyed. Worker speaks of a job to be done. Soldier speaks of a battle to be fought. It's precious and rare when God grants us relationships which operate on each of these three levels. He got sick with Paul and almost died, and now Paul's going to send him back. And say if you'd sent someone out to go minister to someone and they just got sick, you'd feel like that was a failure. But he's saying, no, it wasn't a failure. Treat him. He almost died for the cause of Christ. And he lays out on him, he goes, so then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor. Uh, especially with people like him, right? Verse 30, because he almost died for the work of Christ and he risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give him, give me. I love, you know, how he's just very, has a great way with words. He's basically saying, hey, you couldn't do it, he did. He finished what you began. Don't give him a hard time. Encourage him, be a blessing. And the Greek word here for risk, it says he risked. That means he gambled. It's like you're all in. You took everything on one shot. He risked it all for the gospel. That's how he lived. That's what he did, and he almost died. And he, and he risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give him. And this is the last thing I'll read here. They could not give it because they weren't with Paul. Epaphroditus was, was the one who completed the work that they began. We should have the heart that there is something lacking in our service until the job is done. We should not be satisfied with good intentions or a half-done job. This goes for spiritual things that Paul described here as well as others. Intentions are great, but God works in us to will and to do. So what is God asking you to complete this morning? What is God asking you to finish this morning? What is God asking you to respond to this morning? May we respond and work out our faith this week and apply these things that God desires to work in and through us. Amen? So uh, kind of long and lengthy there, but the idea is look to Jesus. If we've received so much from him, this is how we're to have our relationships with one another. Next time you run into conflict, ask 
is the conflict because I'm trying to assert my will above someone else's, or am I esteeming them above me? Yuck. Just love that, working in the flesh. And let me just end with this one thought. If we all esteemed each other above ourselves, no one gets looked down upon. We're all looking up to one another. We're all looking, hey, no, you go for it. What's ever best for you? And this is to the glory of God. Let's live like that. And our next week, our weekend is going to be, oh, magically changed. I think it's going to be more like a, you know, a lifelong process. So let God do this work in us. Let his spirit do it. Don't grieve him, amen? All right. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you that you even worked through me with a scattered brain and just a little bit fatigued. Um, Father, I, I lift up your flock here. I lift up your church, your precious children, and I, I lift them before your throne and ask that you would fill them, Lord, with desires that are godly. Help them to follow through on them. And I pray that you'd increase in them. Just they be fashioned to the image of Jesus. I see it at work. I see so many evidences of, of just you upon these people. And I pray it would increase every single day. I pray that your name would be lifted up. I pray that people wouldn't have to ask if we're a Christian or not. They would see it. I pray something would shine so brightly in our hearts and our lives that people would be drawn to your Son. Help us in our weakness, God. There are many. Bless our kids. Help us as we work and our parents and all these stressful situations. Lord God, we lift, we lift up the day to you. We pray for all of the people that we'll come in contact with, and we ask for you to just bless. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.